following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. This is the third lecture in our course on dream yoga and astral travel. We discussed that there are degrees of consciousness, states of being. We're going to elaborate on the fact that consciousness is a spectrum. We have a polarity between awakened, divine, spiritual, conscious faculties, enlightenment, illumination. On the other end, you have states of unconsciousness, sleep, dreaming. For most of humanity, what we understand about ourselves can really be defined as a state of profound sleep, a state of dreaming. We explain that dreams are not only when we physically go to bed at night and eight hours pass, or we experience when the body is at rest. But we experience dreams all the time in our daily life in many ways. What concerns us in this particular course is understanding our state, our quality of life, the way we perceive. To understand what in us, perhaps, is a source of suffering, of many problems, of many conflicts. We can say with clarity and assurance that the cause of many sufferings is because we lack awareness or we are hypnotized by our own ways of thinking, of ways of reacting to the world, our habits. 
In this course, we are exploring a particular type of work in which we transform our consciousness from a state that is dreaming, unaware, or afflicted with suffering into something that's brilliant, spiritual, ethical, virtuous, divine. There are many different types of beings, especially in our world, but also in the universe. And they fall along this spectrum of consciousness. Among the heights, the most elevated nature of spiritual being, we have entities we call angels, prophets, masters, Buddhas, gods. The term Buddha means awakened one, to be cognizant, to know oneself. And all the prophets that we, as a collective humanity, as a collective consciousness, value and respect, were precisely beings who learned to awaken their full potential, to master themselves, and thereby exhibit and express qualities that are truly revolutionary. We find such beings are like Jesus, Buddha, Moses, Krishna, the founders of religion, who taught that by changing who we are, we can elevate ourselves and learn to communicate directly with the divine from experience, not a matter of belief. But the problem becomes individually, specifically, applying what they taught and understanding what in us prevents our potential from being realized. We call them conditions of mind. We talk about states like anger, like pride, fear, anxiety, vengeance, many type of defects which characterize many of our daily states. And it is precisely these types of emotions and thoughts and worries and fears which keep us within a state of hypnosis, not fully aware of why we suffer or how we affect others. By examining that quality and that dynamic, we are learning to become like these masters whose spiritual caliber has been tested by the most extreme circumstances, who have demonstrated in their very soul and spirit the most beautiful attributes. And so we like to study their lives, their teachings, because they show us a potential in us for truly finding and establishing real joy, real happiness. So all of that, egotism, selfishness, resentment, 
We call those conditions. Because in a moment in which we have a conflict, someone criticizes us, we feel that reaction of anger emerging. We don't will it. It just happens. Or with fear. Many emotions. These qualities emerge in the moment in response to some type of stimulus, often without our own control. That shows that we are conditioned. But by learning to work with what we call the consciousness, some religions call it soul, we can learn to transform the situation. We have a statistic in our studies which can be daunting. We state that we have 97% of our potential, our consciousness, trapped, conditioned by all of those defects I mentioned. But we also have 3% consciousness that is not trapped yet by those faults. And that by working with that, that perception, by learning to understand what the consciousness, the soul, really is, that 3% can become gradually 4%, 5%, 10%, until radically all of the imperfections that we carry within are removed. And the soul that was once trapped and in a cage becomes free. It is that soul that knows how to astral project at will, how to receive divine teachings from the masters internally, knows how to interpret dreams, knows how to investigate the realities of life and death with competency, with skill. So the question we can ask ourselves, what part of the spectrum of consciousness do we inhabit, if we're honest? Do we lean towards selfishness or the other end, awakening, selflessness, compassion, real virtue? So we're going to examine today what qualities of awakening are. What is awakening? What does it mean to awaken? But also, what can one do when awakened? But also, how do we awaken, more importantly? It's good to reflect on the reality of those beings that I mentioned because they were once like us. And yet, through this science, we're able to become something truly brilliant and remarkable and rare. We'll talk about certain methods in this lecture, precisely about how to understand ourselves and how to transform the conditions of mind into liberated perception. We're also going to examine who are those who no longer dream. Who are awakened? What are these beings like? 
And also, why should we emulate the awakened ones? We come back to this image because it's very deep. It's called the line of life and the line of being. We mentioned how all of humanity, all of us, enter the line of life at our birth. It is horizontal because everybody belongs to it. It encompasses everyone. We progress in a temporal fashion from our birth to childhood, to adolescence, to adulthood, to maturity, old age, decrepitude, and then death. Everybody must face the inevitability of this path, this process. A lot of people only focus on this, their life, and how they progress through the scenarios of life, oftentimes ignoring and fearing the unknown, and that one day we must die. People preoccupy themselves at a young age with playing, friendship, communities, education. Adulthood, finding a job, starting a family, retiring, and eventually being surrounded by loved ones until one must finally enter that door of death. But unfortunately, people tend to go through life very superficially, thinking that only by accumulating wealth or money or prestige, a retirement fund, that somehow one has lived truly well. These in themselves are beautiful and necessary, but they are not everything. This line is the line of time. The moment we are born and the moment we die is processed within time. And often as we go through life, we tend to be very much absorbed, not in the present moment, but in our memories, our past, our future. Not really looking at what is going on here and now. Perhaps we had a trauma growing up that we live with every day, thinking about, reminiscing, stewing. For other people, it could be fear of security, not knowing what the future will hold, and always looking ahead. These are dreams. It is dreaming. We dream in the body. Whenever we try to interpret the moment through the lens of the past, constantly analyzing, scrutinizing, Assessing through perhaps a psychological lens of anger or fear or whatever it may be. Or we look to the future. We think ahead. We fear things that are not there, 
We're not present. We're not aware of ourselves. We're not here. We are not now. That realization can only occur when we take a sincere look at ourselves. What is the quality of our life? What is our state of consciousness? What is our level of being? Our ways of thinking, feeling, and acting. That is a realization that is only defined and realized in the moment. No longer dreaming of the past, no longer dreaming of the future, but paying attention, being aware, actively looking at the world and ourselves. As we do that type of work, we begin to understand this line of being very well. We realize that there are different states of consciousness that are superior, and there are states of consciousness that are inferior. I've already named some. We have states of suffering and negativity, egotism, selfishness, etc. Feelings of density, of apprehension and fear, whereby we are weighed down by perhaps our own weaknesses or ambitions, prejudices, whatever it may be. But there are also superior states, which religions have called virtue, ethics, real compassion, selflessness, sacrifice for others, patience, perseverance, understanding. There are degrees of this. There are many shades and qualities and nuances to those qualities of consciousness. And in the present moment, we have the potential and the decision to make of whether or not we are going to enact a higher level of being or an inferior one. But the only way that we can recognize in the moment is if we're paying attention, observing ourselves, not from an intellectual standpoint, like a detective would with labeling data and information and phenomena. Instead, it's a different type of perception. This type of looking does not involve thought, although we can be thinking. It's just an act of consciously looking at ourselves, observing. It is in this way, by learning to perceive our circumstances and our relationship to it, that we can learn to stop dreaming, learn to enter superior states. I'll reiterate these states of consciousness that we talked about before, because it's really deep. Before I gave the Sanskrit terms from Hinduism. So Shupti, Sapna, Jagrat, and Turiya. Here in Greek we have Ikasya, Pistis, Dianoia, and Nous. Different terms, but the same principles. 
Because these are eternal. They don't belong to any particular culture, although different languages have been used to talk about the same thing. In Ecclesia, we find profound sleep. It's important to remember that these are states of consciousness, not states of the body. The body could be active or inactive. But what concerns us is how we, as a consciousness, are behaving. Profound sleep really has to do with a type of mentality and mindset that is barbaric. I mentioned before that when you see a crowd or a mob, a lynching, a war, it's because the people involved are profoundly asleep. They're not aware of themselves or what they're doing. There's been soldiers who've been interviewed about their experiences in war and how they mentioned that it doesn't take any thought to kill someone. And later dealing with the trauma of that act. The reality is that if humanity was awake, we would understand and love our neighbor because we would feel ourselves one with humanity. But profound sleep involves no mindfulness, no presence, no understanding of our neighbor. And that is why the worst acts of genocide, murder, violence have been performed by people who are profoundly asleep. Their consciousness is not there. In a more accessible example, we experience profound sleep all the time. We can reflect on moments in our day in which we lack remembering or remembrance. Recollection of what we did, who we met, who we talked with, what we thought, what we felt, and what we did. If you sit to meditate and to kind of re-examine the moments of your day, there are moments that will emerge within our attention that we can't recall. There's no memory there. It's because we're not really awake. Or perhaps watching television is a good example. In front of a television screen, we can be receiving all this data and information through dramas, through films or movie shows, TV shows, and be so immersed in what's going on that we're not aware of our own body. We feel and think and experience life through the characters, through their emotions, not realizing or discriminating that this is all an illusion. These are actors. They're presenting a mirage. But also we lose awareness of ourselves. Someone could be talking to us from the other room while we're watching whatever it may be and not realize what's going on. It means we're really asleep. What's interesting, too, is that this term, ikasia, in Greek, comes from ikonon. 
means images. It's interesting. Why is it that profound sleep involves images? It has to do with something psychological. We can be receiving information from the world, the images of life, impressions, scenery, wherever we're walking, we're taking in the environment, but we're not mindful of what's going on. We don't really know where we're at at some point, perhaps, lost in reverie. And then we may be sparked or shocked into remembrance because we forgot our turn on our walk. Or maybe taking public transit, we are thinking so much or just not aware of where we're at that we miss our stop. That's ecosia. But also, too, taking in information but not really perceiving it or understanding it, not being aware of it. There's another type of sleep we call pistis, dreaming sleep. Pistis comes from the Greek pistheo, meaning to have assurance, to have faith in, to believe, to have confidence in. What is it that humanity has most confidence in? There are many different beliefs and philosophies, schools of thought, ideologies, theologies, religions, institutions, doctrines. There also exist many senses of identity, maybe based on our race, our language, our culture, our belief systems, our religion, our appearance, our job, our class, our gender. We have many ideas and many concepts revolving about who we are. And we have a lot of faith and assurance in these things, that somehow they are lasting, that they're eternal. But the reality is that they're not. They won't last when we die. What will return or perhaps progress and develop is the soul. We are not the body. The body with its appetites, cravings, and tastes. One day it will go. But what's going to remain? It's a big question. When we have faith in or assurance in temporal things, we call this dreaming. All the ideas we have, perhaps, that my or may give us some type of temporal security. In truth, these are not sustainable. They are not permanent. They are not lasting. So we talk a lot about dreams. We dream all the time. Perhaps driving our car. We're thinking of our friend, fiance, partner. And we don't see someone walking across the street and we get into an accident. It's because we're dreaming. We're not paying attention. 
Or perhaps someone is talking to us and instead of hearing what they have to say, seeing the new, the novel, the immediate, we're interpreting through the lens of the past, waiting to say our next word, not really listening to what's going on. So there are many forms of dreams. Pistis. But what concerns us in this school is learning how to access waking consciousness. In Greek, we call it dianoia. Dianoia means, from the prefix, dia, meaning thoroughly, from side to side, which intensifies noia, which is mind. This is very interesting. That dianoia means to go side to side with the mind, to be flexible to be adaptive, to be intuitive. Not really having to think about something but knowing how to act correctly in any circumstance. Waking consciousness is dianoia. It is a state in which we really perceive life with greater lucidity, with intensity, with comprehension. Qualities like patience and happiness, as I mentioned, compassion. These are all the qualities that belong to the awake soul, the awakened consciousness, which knows how to act with intelligence, can solve problems, knows how to be flexible. I'm sure we can think of many people in our life, perhaps we've known, who are inflexible. They can't adapt to any situation. Maybe we have that difficulty in certain aspects of our life. We don't know how to intelligently respond to a problem, whatever it may be. We have a particular weakness, perhaps. But Dianoia knows how to look with a penetrative wisdom at any conflict and knows how to dissolve it. It is profound. And Dianoia, this awakened state, really makes us revise our beliefs. So looking back at Pistis, dreaming sleep, we talked about perhaps beliefs about who we are, identity especially. But in a moment of awakening consciousness, not only in the physical world, but also in the dream world, where we perceive life in that dimension, that reality, we realize we're more than just our body. In fact, the soul is much more ancient, predates our body. So all these things that we accumulate in life, like language, name, race, gender, culture, these things are temporary. The soul is much more profound than that. So while it's important to obviously develop a personality in this world, it's not the defining factor of a human being, but unfortunately, People have created division based off of appearances instead of recognizing the soul of people, the humanity of others. So we change our beliefs about ourselves. It's a form of revolution because we realize we have a divine origin and that we can return to that if we're willing. And in that way, we enter nous. In Greek, this means mind. 
but I think that's an inaccurate translation by scholars. Primarily because the type of consciousness we're referring to is not intellectual. Spiritual illumination, cognizance, omniscience, this is the level and quality of a God. Beings who can have perception of things that are inaccessible to ordinary people. But the reality is that, like us, they had to develop. They had to recognize that they were asleep and that they were dreaming. And by working to awaken consciousness, they achieved illumination. Brilliant qualities of being. I'll give you an example of what noose is like. My wife and I recently came back from a trip visiting one of the other Gnostic institutions that we study with. A group of us were talking about different things, different matters, whether political, spiritual, etc. Certain situations that were going on with us. The next day, the missionary who runs this center gave a talk. And even though he was not physically present when we met the day before, he was talking about things that we discussed in minute detail from beginning to end in sequence, giving us insight and helping us realize how foolish we were. We were debating and arguing about things. And so this individual was expressing a quality known as news. He knew what we were talking about, even though he wasn't physically there. That's one example. There are many because these states of consciousness exist in a spectrum. There isn't one layer above the other in a form of rigid, static hierarchy. Instead, it's graded. There are many depths of the consciousness in sleep. There are also many qualities of dreams. And likewise, in the superior aspect of consciousness, when it's awake, there are many degrees. From less perfect to more perfect. Until finally, among noose, there is even greater type of realizations. The reason why we talk about dreams is because we want to awaken. We want to cease dreaming. First, physically, and then, when we go to bed at night, we ask to project, we enter willingly into that state and gain knowledge that we yearn for, guidance from divinity. Samal Vior, who is the founder of this school and this tradition that we study, stated in a book called The Revolution of the Dialectic, one needs to cease dreaming within the internal worlds. When we stop dreaming in the physical world, we awaken here and now, and that awakening appears in the internal worlds. So how do we awaken? What's the path? What are the methods? We're explaining different practices sequentially in this course so that we can learn to awaken within the dream state and also awaken physically while active in our body of flesh and bone. There's one statement that Samal Anvior gave that's really compelling in relation to this topic. We see a woman Alice in Wonderland ascending a stairway towards light. 
towards those prophetic heights. Dianoia news. She does so because she recognizes how she dreams. It's a symbol of the soul. The first step is recognizing that we're dreaming in daily life through the examples I mentioned. The mind could be thinking of one thing, our emotions are reacting in another way, and our will is divided. In a sense, this shows us that we lack a type of integrity or cohesion. So amidst perhaps our daily sufferings and struggles in life, whether it may be at our job, maybe a marriage, maybe with friends, whatever our idiosyncrasy is, we can learn to overcome that confusion by learning to follow our heart. The heart knows without having to think. In our Western culture, we believe the intellect is everything, and it's wrong. The Eastern cultures have it much more accurately. The heart can tell us many things. It's the heart that judges, that understands, that knows. The term intuition is a spiritual buzzword, has a lot of meaning, which not a lot of people understand. Intuition in its real sense is knowing without having to think, without having to deliberate with the intellect. We have a problem, a situation, the mind debates, driven by fear, mechanicity, the past. Fantasizing about a solution, feeling insufficient and inadequate. Feeling empty and full of despair. Intuition is the, is the solution. The reality is, to solve a problem, don't think about it. Doesn't mean that we're not going to have to act on something, but it means that the process of Thought, churning, confusion, trying to solve it with the intellect is not the most sure way. Intuition is when you examine your heart, when you examine your soul. It's not a thinking process. The heart knows how to act in a situation. If you put the mind aside, understanding can emerge. Sometimes it comes in the form of an idea. And this happens with training. Because right now, in the beginning, we tend to be very afflicted with a lot of problems. We don't know how to solve them. We dream about a solution. And we ignore that that grasping at some type of solidity or solution is precisely how we stir up the mud and don't see within the depths of ourselves. This is why serenity, calmness of mind, and opening of the heart is the answer. Intuitive action occurs when you know in your heart what to do. 
even if the mind screams, kicks, yells, doesn't want to do it. And it takes a lot of willpower, a lot of skill. This is why we train in meditation and different exercises in this course, which lead towards that type of facility and faculty. Salman Vyar stated that intuitive action leads us by the hand towards the awakening of the consciousness. One example I can give of this, I can think of my present job, just day to day interacting with people, my coworkers. I'll have different emotions emerge as I'm, as I'm observing myself, being mindful throughout the day, being aware of my thoughts, my impulses. And just knowing in situations, without having to deliberate, how should I behave around this person? Because this has been a new job for me along my career path. And obviously there's always that hesitance and discomfort when meeting new people, especially you don't know who they are, how they're viewing you, how they evaluate you, perhaps. So what I've learned in those moments is put my mind aside, open my heart, be attentive. And if you're really connecting in your heart, being present, being aware of your own inner divinity, your being, you suddenly know what to do. It just comes out seemingly from nowhere. And the results speak for themselves as you look at the quality of one's relationships, one's actions. Leads to success. Builds communities. Solves problems. Intellect doesn't solve problems. It's the heart. There are many examples such as businessmen who have long meetings trying to fix something. And then they say, let's take a 15-minute break. They leave. Don't think of the problem. Suddenly, five members have an idea. It just comes. It's a simple example, but it's the same dynamic. Thinking is an obstacle, usually in us. We may have jobs which require the intellect, where we need to think about things, store information, relay information, compare, analyze, contrast. Personally, my job is very intellectual, but that's not the primary gear that runs my relationships with people at my job. Instead, it's learning how to use the intellect with understanding, with the soul, with the consciousness. The consciousness is not the intellect. The consciousness does not have to think. In the same way that you drive a car, the consciousness drives the mind. It's behind it. Thinking is secondary. I'll give you an example. Put your hand on a hot stove, you burn it, you retract your hand in pain. You perceive it immediately. The instinct was to get out of danger. You feel emotional anger or stress. And then your thought emerges, that hurt. Thought is very slow. This is the main ingredient of a person, as much as our Western academia would have us believe. And because we've tended to put so much 
investment within our thinking that we've depleted ourselves of our other faculties, which is the heart. People have wondered why they can't astral project at will. It's because usually in the West, we're too intellectual. You develop the intellect too much, your heart gets weak. This is not to say that people from other cultures who may be less literate than us have an advantage. There has to be a balance between the mind and the heart. But our mind tends to storm, like in this image of this man looking out of a window towards his internal psychological atmosphere. Our thoughts are like wind, clouds, and if we're filled with rage, like storms. We want to calm the mind in these studies. By calming the mind, by entering a state of serenity, learning how to concentrate with equanimity, with unwavering focus, with relaxation. We open the door to the internal worlds. Right now, our consciousness is not trained yet. Typically in the beginning, we are usually very distracted, thinking of other things, or very much caught up in the cycles of life. Our daily schedule, getting up for work, taking care of family, responsibilities, pets even. We tend to go through our cycles in life with our attention very much dispersed, even fragmented, multitasking, right? That's a big thing in our American culture. But that type of a distraction keeps us from perceiving what is going on here and now. Impressions emerge in life, different situations. It's necessary to know how to respond. What I'm emphasizing is that we learn not to react, and that's different. React, uh, reactivity is basically, as I said, we are criticized, we feel anger, we retaliate. Very mechanical. But if you're learning to observe yourself and understand that reaction in you, you can understand the source of that pain. And understand, perhaps, that the other person is afflicted too, is in suffering and is asleep, is not aware of what they're doing or their effect on you. Therefore, you have compassion. You respond with love, with patience, with sweetness. But that type of understanding is based on mindfulness, being aware of each moment, like on that diagram of the line of life and line of being. Moment by moment, we learn to enact a superior way of ethics, of understanding, of patience. This requires that we have a mind that's receptive. Right now, the intellect is active. Someone could be talking to us, and yet our thoughts are churning, are going place to place. The mind's not calm. And if the mind is active, then... The consciousness is asleep. So, having a receptive mind indicates a state in which we are aware of our surroundings at all times, but also observing our inner psychology. Examining the relationship of events with our inner states. And that doesn't require that we have to 
use the intellect so much. Obviously, with a job, we use our intellect when we need to. But it's important not to necessarily do things in life while thinking every process out. It's an exertion of the mind, and that creates tension, but also depletes us of a lot of energy that we need if what we want is to awaken the soul. So Samalan Vyur mentioned in The Revolution of the Dialectic an interesting quote about the need to be mindful in the sense of aware of oneself without having to deliberate step by step, thinking this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to do this, etc. Instead, to have an alert novelty in the same way that as you're walking down a street, perhaps in some European city, cobblestone path after a rainfall and a sunset, one appreciates the beauty and the novelty, the vibrancy and the color of one's scenery with it a feeling of awe. Mind isn't there. Intellect is not labeling. This is beautiful. Obviously, if we think that, we lose the power of the moment. We're not seeing it for what it is. If you're eating, eat. If you're getting dressed, get dressed. And if you're walking on the street, walk, walk. Walk, but do not think about anything else. Do only what you are doing. Do not run away from the facts. Do not fill them with so many meanings, symbols, sermons, and warnings. Live them without allegories. Live them with a receptive mind from moment to moment. As we're observing ourselves and becoming aware moment by moment, developing a continuity of perception, we start to gather new information about ourselves and the world that we never knew. This type of information is psychological, has to do with the line of being, has to do with our internal qualities. We may know that we are a certain type of person, with certain likes, dislikes, habits, preferences, tastes, prejudices. But are we actively observing that? We may know that we're seated here in these chairs, but are we observing it? It's one thing to know, it's another thing to observe. It's a different quality. Another example is we may drive a certain route to work, but we're not really observing what's going on outside of us. We know the path, and we kind of go on autopilot. Maybe we put on our playlist from YouTube, listen to music, prepare for the day, but we don't really pay attention to what's going on outside of us. That's a profound state of sleep. This awakening has to do with looking at the repeatable verifiable, observable facts of oneself. By fact, I'm not referring to what we can read in a, in a book or from the news. It has to do with what do we see in ourselves. Those are the type of facts we're examining in these studies. Putting aside 
politics, religion, beliefs, ideology, differences. What are the observable facts of who we are and how we relate to the world, how we dream, how we live? We may think we are one way, have certain beliefs, concepts about who we are, but perhaps at work someone has a conflict with us and says, you've wronged me. And the instinct might be to react and say, I did nothing wrong, even after hearing the facts. But the truth is that sometimes people see us more clearly than we see ourselves. But everybody's dreaming, as I said. We dream about ourselves, who we are. But what are the observable, concrete details of our daily life? So in that circumstance, we have a conflict at work. Are we observing that? We may know the situation is one thing, but are we looking at it? Are we examining it? Are we looking at our own mental states, emotional states, physical states? To look and examine as a child would, smelling a flower, Jesus said, you must become as little as children in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't mean physically we have to become small or naive or stupid or gullible. It means to appreciate what is happening around us and within us. This is why Salman Vyar stated, Gnosis has lived upon facts withers away in abstractions and is difficult to find even in the noblest of thoughts. That observable understanding of oneself is gnosis. It's a Greek term. People commonly translate it as knowledge, but in reality, it is not of the intellect, it's of the heart. What we see in ourselves, what we understand It withers away in abstractions in that this type of spiritual life is not based on beliefs or what we prefer or what we like or dislike. It's based on what are the consequences of our actions within oneself and then within our communities. What are the cause and effect relationships? And even if we are noble in our aspirations and anyone who approaches spirituality is, that is not enough. What are important are the facts. What are the consequences of our actions? When we examine that, we awaken. When we live it. When we do it. In this process, we examine three degrees of cognizance. This is from Fundamentals of Gnostic Education. It's a tool that can help us to examine the quality of our internal states so that by looking at our life physically, our dream life changes. We start to awaken more and more within that dimension. It starts physically. Some questions that we can ask ourselves, maybe at the beginning of the day, before we engage with life, or perhaps at the end, before we go to sleep. First, 
time. How long did we remain cognizant? Perhaps we're walking on the street, going to work. We began our day with a spiritual practice. We're being observant of ourselves, aware. We're very lucid. We're looking at the environment surrounding us. We see the colors and the fashion that people wear, the streets, the location, the city. We see it with a vivid uh, intensiveness, a sharp perception. There's more color and vibrancy. We're alert. And we're maintaining that moment by moment as we're walking, not thinking of other things, just observing. And then we pass a store, perhaps. We see something in the shop window that sparks our attention. And we suddenly feel that attachment and that longing to possess that thing. So we immediately go towards the window. It takes our attention. We start thinking of how we could own it, what we would have to earn, the steps we would need to take to possess that object. And then as we're walking away, we're just continuing to think about possessing whatever it is we want, whatever we desire. Maybe an hour passes, we're at work, and suddenly we remember. I was supposed to be observing myself. I started thinking of something else. I got hypnotized. And then we can recall, reflect. How long were we cognizant while walking down the street? That's something concrete we can examine and ask. But also, too, we want to examine how often we awaken, how often we have that state or experience it. Second, frequency. How many times have we awakened our consciousness? We could be walking down the street, go to work. We realize that perhaps we maintain that type of continuity of perception and awareness at certain moments in the day. Perhaps we awaken more in the morning before certain situations occur. And that shows us a pattern of our mental process, our way of being. And we're looking at how frequently we are able to sustain that state. That's frequency. Another important factor, the last one is, third, amplitude and penetration. What was one cognizant of? This has to do with the quality of our perception. How much are we seeing? What are we seeing? How deeply are we experiencing life? How intensely with the soul? What are we understanding? As we reflect on these three principles and apply them and assess our daily life, we start to develop that type of consciousness within the dream state. Where suddenly, after we go to bed, we find ourselves swimming in a street, right? These type of things happen in the dream world. We might become aware for a moment. It can be very brief, in the beginning especially. And suddenly, suddenly we wake up. We realize, I was just dreaming. But with practice, that type of experience becomes more frequent. If you're more frequently awakening consciousness in your physical life, when you go to bed at night, you start to waken up more and more. In the beginning, we dream. 
We start to remember our dreams. We recall our dreams. We have more depth and color and vibrancy. These things intensify with time, gradually, until, again, we find ourselves swimming in the street, and because of training, we recognize this happened before. You can't do this in the physical world. You're aware. You realize I'm in the internal planes, the astral dimension. Also, the amplitude, the magnification, the penetration, the depth of our perception becomes more and more and more, greater and greater as we're evaluating ourselves. Until with patient work, we can start to experience what religions have called the highest states of consciousness, such as noose. The word Turiya is Sanskrit. We talked about it briefly in a former lecture. It is the state of noose. Turiya is Sanskrit. It is spiritual, awakened, illuminated perception. It is the quality of a prophet, of a master, of a god. In the beginning, obviously, as we're progressing, we start to become more cognizant of dreams. But with training we can start to taste experiences that are really sacred, really rare. They come as a spark, a flash, usually very quickly, a type of perception that is not limited to even the fifth dimension, the dream world. Instead, one can ascend towards even higher planes of consciousness, which we're going to talk about in the next lecture. Where do we dream? There are spiritual planes beyond the astral. The astral plane is not the only internal dimension. There are degrees and hierarchies amongst different levels of experience, from more material, like the physical world, to more rarefied and abstract, subtle. Those spiritual dimensions are very enlightening. And in those states, there is no possibility of misperception. Because in the astral world, even though it's in a more subtle state, is not necessarily the most objective. We can all relate to the fact that we've probably had dreams that reflect some type of situation in life or a fear or a conflict, whatever it may be. In the astral world, one still has the potential of seeing only the conditions of our own mind, our own dreams, which are not objective. They're not real in a pure sense, in a pervasive sense. When you go up those different dimensions, as we talked about the tree of life previously, you enter states of consciousness that are less afflicted by any type of self or selfishness, egotism. Within higher dimensions, like the realm of the spirit, the being, the divine, one could be conscious that they are perceiving this table and they can see all the atoms it possesses. In that level or dimension of conscious divine expression, one sees things in a very 
penetrative way. It relates to the world of mathematics, which, if you're interested in learning more about how numbers are sacred, numbers relate to intuitive principles, you can study our course we gave called The Eternal Tarot of Alchemy and Kabbalah, where we talk about how numerology, numbers, are spiritual. They represent forces in nature. And so in this spiritual state, you can see things that are not accessible even within the astral plane, which still has an element of illusion to it. Instead, we're concerned about nous, perfect awakened consciousness. Nous is perfect awakened consciousness. Nous is the state of Turiya, profound, perfect interior illumination. Nous is legitimate objective clairvoyance. Nous is intuition. Nous is the world of the divine archetypes. Noetic thought is synthetic, clear, objective, illuminated. Whosoever reaches the heights of noetic thought totally awakens consciousness and becomes a Turiya. So I mentioned that we should rely on intuition. That relates to nous. You know a thing immediately. No need to conceptualize or deliberate. Nous is also perfect clairvoyance. And this is a term that unfortunately has misled a lot of people. It simply in French means clear vision. It's the faculty of imagination. To imagine, to perceive non-physical imagery. This is what we do every time we dream. We're seeing with clairvoyance. But for most of us, it tends to be very filtered, obscured, fragmented, dispersed. But with training, your, perception, your perceptive qualities, the capacity to perceive images of an internal psychological type becomes much more robust. And when it's perfected, you achieve what's known as Turiya. It's clear, objective, illuminated. It is the world of divine archetypes. And the word archetype, if you're familiar with Jungian psychology, has to do with principles in the universe that are basically the building blocks of the soul. Study the course on Tarot we gave if you're interested in learning more about that. On the other hand, as Samal Vyar continues, the lowest part of man is irrational and subjective and is related with the five ordinary senses. The highest part of man is the world of intuition and objective spiritual consciousness. In the world of intuition, the archetypes of all things in nature develop. Only those who have penetrated the world of objective intuition, only those who have reached the solemn heights of noetic thought, are truly awakened and illuminated. It's important to remember, too, that in our process of meditation, we can experience glimpses of that state. Having a temporary vision or experience doesn't mean that we're fully and permanently established in that. So there's been a mistake among some people and groups who've had that type of experience to think that they are mahatmas or gods or saints and they can create a lot of problems, right? One thing is to temporarily experience that state, that awakening. Another thing is to be permanently at that level. That's something very different. So why be like Vituria, the prophets, the enlightened ones? the awakened ones. We see an image here of Jesus serving the poor. Real masters are humble. Those who awaken consciousness 
in its fullest sense and degree are very simple. They don't boast of titles. They don't demand allegiance. Their sole concern is for us, for suffering humanity. As we see in the example of Jesus, who literally died for others, or Buddha, Moses, Krishna, whomever we can name. They are defined and distinctly characterized by their tremendous love, like a sun that shines for both sinners and saints, regardless. Their ethics do not waver. They are kind even when they are crucified. They are patient even when those for whom they suffer don't appreciate what they have to give. These types of beings are not understood, primarily because their caliber of divine personality is contrary to what humanity loves, which is pride, vengeance, hatred, violence. These beings really work and serve and endure for the sake of our planet. And oftentimes they work in secrecy because they know the state of humanity. They understand that to announce themselves is first to be proud of what does not belong to them but to divinity. On the second hand, they don't want followers. They don't demand attendance. They don't command for our respect. They are loving, they are forgiving, and they are most of all understanding. They perceive a person within all the dimensions of their being. They understand the circumstances of people and how to solve problems, but they don't give advice because they want to be put on a pedestal. In fact, they are really humble. We mention these examples of these masters and prophets because this is our goal. This is why we want to stop dreaming in daily life, to cease being a machine, mechanically repeating behaviors and habits and conditions and sufferings without knowing why. Instead, by bearing this goal in mind, we know that what we know what we can become. These masters don't dream. They don't dream in the sense that physically they go to bed and see nothing. Instead, they no longer have any illusion about themselves, who they are, who others are. Because they have radically altered their own psychology, have removed their own causes of suffering, they are able to help others with great expediency, with intuition, with wisdom. Jesus was once like us, despite many centuries of theology. Buddha was the same. All the masters were once ordinary, but because they had an aspiration, an inquietude in the heart, 
a longing to know something more of reality, they decided to end their dreams. To look. To work. Therefore, they don't dream. They're awakened within the physical world, but also the internal worlds. They can see, even physically, they have a body. Multiple dimensions at once. No confusion there. But for us, we have a very difficult time even conceptualizing what the astral world is, unless we've had the experience. And this is why we emphasize in this school, don't take these words at face value, but test them. You can experiment with the practices that we give, lecture by lecture, to verify this for yourself. Salman Vayar stated in the perfect matrimony, a true Turiya cannot dream. The Turiya who has reached the heights of noetic thought never goes about saying so, never presumes to be wise. He is extremely simple and humble, pure and perfect. In the West, we often denigrate these terms, simplicity, humility, because we believe in our North American culture that to be simple is to be stupid or to be humble is to be taken advantage of. In reality, the truth cannot be more distinct. Jesus was a very learned man. He studied all religions and he synthesized them in a way that was very accessible for people. Now, whatever people teach or interpret what he taught is another thing. But actually looking at the knowledge that he disseminated is something different. To be humble means to have dignity, but not to self-aggrandize oneself, to assume one is something that one is not. These are the qualities of those who don't dream, who are perfect, who are illuminated. Their sole concern is for humanity. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 6. Let us not be intoxicated by our own defects, our own errors. Let us take responsibility for our own conditions of mind so that we are not asleep, unaware, not knowing where we came from, where we're going, or where we're at. Salman Bayar stated in the Revolution of the Dialectic, first seek enlightenment, and all else will be added unto you. Putting aside dreams, ambitions, that first I must do this, this, and that, and then I will be spiritual. The concept that one day I will be a master or illuminated. Those two are dreams, spiritual dreams. Noble of thought, but they are abstractions that wither from the facts. Instead, by learning to understand who we are moment by moment, as we traverse the road of our own inner work, we get insight and guidance. So the exercise for this lecture, every day, Develop your self-observation from moment to moment. 
Also extend your mindfulness, the length of time that you are aware of yourself. At the end of each day, reflect on how you did. Every day, develop your meditative concentration. Adopt a meditation posture. Relax completely. Then focus 100% attention on your chosen object. We talked about taking a candle, observing the flame. Simple practice in which, as you're observing the candlelight, you're also observing how you observe. You are examining your mind. If you start thinking of something else, daydreaming, recollecting, gently bring yourself back to your attention. Look at the candle. The mind tends to be attached and distracted, jumping from one thing to the next. This exercise teaches us how to focus on one thing so that we can understand ourselves. That's one practice you can do for meditative concentration. That concentration will help us to astral project consciously. You can take any other object, pretty much anything. You can take a stone even. Observe a stone, a rock. Just look at it. Your mind starts to wander, bring your attention back. You can do that for 10 to 15 minutes, maybe two sessions to three. Up to you. And then lastly, write the facts of your day in a spiritual diary. This is a beautiful practice that has been uh, practiced or taught by Swami Shivananda especially. Great yogi and master of Hinduism. If you look at this link on the PDF, you'll find a resource on Glorian Publishing's website where it's an article about how to perform a spiritual diary. Basically, what this practice is, at the end of each day, or whenever you feel inspired, sit down and write. Write about what you experienced. Write about what you've observed in yourself, how your practice is, where it's taken you. Perhaps your fears, your troubles. This diary is only for you. Nobody else can read it, not even your spouse. Instead, it's a way for, our, for us to basically be very concrete about what we're doing, about where we're at, where we want to go, but also, what did we observe? What did we see in ourselves? There are questions in this article basically describing what was your states in the morning, what were you like in the daytime? What were you like in the evening? And you can be as detailed as you want or as simple as you want. It's up to you. But if you write in your journal every day and then you reflect on what you've learned over time, you start to recognize patterns. And then you have a very factual document that is showing you yourself. And there are no ambiguities there. We're not running away from the facts. We're seeing what's there. This exercise can help us go a very long way. I highly recommend it. At this point in time, I'd like to open up the floor to questions. Sure. I have a question about the candle exercise. How do you set up the space for that? I mean, it's, I've never done it, so how many of us can do it? You can have an altar, if possible. Okay. 
but not necessary. Any table, it's nice to have an altar, obviously, someplace you can dedicate your meditation to and your devotion. Have a cloth on top. Any candle will do. Light it. Observe the flame. Lights off, probably? Yeah, the more ambiance, the better. Gets us in the mood to really focus. Sure. You're welcome. At the end of each lecture, we do a practice. So I explain the exercise for this this lecture. Uh, We can stay after. We're going to do a retrospection meditation. Ten minutes, very brief, just so that you can get the flavor of what this exercise is. In it, you relax your body, relax your posture, get comfortable. Close your eyes, introspect. You can focus on your breath, breathing in deeply, inhaling, retaining the air, exhaling. Let yourself settle in the same way that a stone sinks to the bottom of a lake. Relaxation is the beginning. If we can't relax, we're not going to enter a state of meditation. Meditation is not a technique. It's a state of being in which we're perceiving the phenomena and impressions of life with an alert cognitive state. Relaxation is the beginning. If you need to breathe deeply, you can. If you find that you're sufficiently relaxed in your body, you can learn to relax your mind. Relax your heart. We often carry a lot of negative emotions with us. Tensions, anxieties, worries. The key is to look at that. Observe it. As you're observing it, like it's an actor in a film and you're the director, you start to see these different qualities in yourself that are churning, like the image of the cloudy sky in the PowerPoint. The more you look without investing yourself into thought or feeling or a discomfort in the body, you start to see that the waters of the mind begin to settle. They become still, serene. As we enter relaxation and suspension of our senses, no longer looking at the external world, but closing off all distractions internally as well, we can start to concentrate on our experience. We can take a moment in our day that we recall, we remember. You also can visualize any scenes that you went through. Perhaps you want to take a morning, a moment in your morning. Simply recall the event. Play it on the screen of your imagination. Look at it. You'll find in the beginning, especially, the mind will try to alter things. Maybe certain facts. The key is to just be honest. What did we concretely observe and see? And look at it. If I tell you to imagine an apple, you can. Just emerges. It's the same faculty, imagination. Some people call it clairvoyance. It's a fancy term. 
for something really universal and human. Now, imagine the scene as it happened. Try to remember what happened in the day. Maybe from the very beginning to the end. Or you can retrospect, go backwards, from the end of the day to the beginning. It's up to you. Follow your heart. And look within your recollections for moments in the day that you don't have any remembrance. You just can't see the details. You don't know what you thought, felt, acted, did. What happened. And if you don't remember, that's fine in the beginning. Just try to recollect as much information as you can. There are other depths to this practice, which we're going to go into later on in this course, but the beginning is just gaining the ability to just remember and try to visualize it with as much detail as what you saw. So don't force your mind. Don't exert your mind. In the same way that you remember what happened, what you ate for breakfast, just remember it. It's gentle. It doesn't require force. Some people will be sitting in their meditations, scrunching their eyes, trying to exert their mind to do something. It doesn't work that way. Serenity is the key. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at chicagognosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace. Thank you.